if you'll take your Bible and open to uh, Genesis chapter 16, we're in uh, Genesis, and this is supposed to be just an overview, but we're taking it very, very slow, and uh, I think this is week 18 or 19, if you count last year, but Genesis is so foundational and has so much to say about what God is doing and about how he wants us to respond to what he's doing. And uh, right now we're in the second big section of Genesis, so you could say the first big section of Genesis is Genesis 1 to 11, which helps us understand God's plan for the world and the problems in the world, but maybe the the most exciting part of those (laughs) chapters is uh, the promise at the beginning, which sets the agenda for the rest of the... Is this new, this thing, or is this a little different? Sets the agenda for the... Getting a little picky in my old age and all fancy. Yeah, no? Yeah, no, it's fine. What would we do without you, Will? That's amazing. Now let me mess it up by grabbing it. Um, Yeah, so Genesis, probably the most exciting part in Genesis 1 to 11 is the promise about how God's going to send a descendant of Eve to defeat the serpent. And the second section of Genesis is Genesis 12 through 50, which helps us better understand the solution. And uh, you could divide that second section of Genesis 12 to 50 up into three big chunks. So there's the story of Abraham, and then there's the story of Jacob, and then there's the story of Joseph and Judah. And Isaac is in there too, but not very long. He doesn't have much of his own section. The story of Isaac is mostly the story of of Jacob, actually. But we're looking at the story of Abraham, and we've gotten to Genesis chapter 16, which you could probably see at the top, is about Sarai and Hagar. But in a sense, you could say, really, it's about trusting God's promises and what happens when we don't, which is kind of what the story of Abraham is about, trusting God's promises and um, relying on what God is going to do. And, and uh, Abraham is obviously the, the first person in the Bible that we spent a long time focusing on. Adam, if you think about how important Adam is in the Bible, we really don't know much about him except for the fact that he was created, he sinned, and, and had some kids, but that's about it. And then Noah, we know a little more, but not much. But we really uh, spend a lot of time looking at Abraham. And we see that what made Abraham great and important was not Abraham, but the fact that God was acting to save through Abraham and specifically through one of his descendants and that Abraham believed it, though not perfectly. So he goes on a journey from chapter 12 through 22 where God is testing and refining his faith. And um, he believes God. That is uh, fundamental. And Genesis 15 verse 6 says, God counted it to him as righteousness. And uh, the New Testament, and Paul in particular, picks that up and says that Abraham is a model for how people are saved. So what does God want from us? He wants us to be like Abraham, to trust God's promises, to provide salvation through the descendant of Abraham, whom we know now as Jesus. So we're faith people as Christians from the beginning of the Bible. We believe in the importance of faith, and we believe specifically that it's vital we trust God's word about how good he is and um, the way he wants to show us goodness. So if you think about Genesis 1 through 11, that's what got people in trouble from the beginning. They wouldn't trust that God is as good as he 
says he is. They wouldn't trust his promises. And that's actually why anxiety is such a big sin and fear is such a big sin. And if we think of Genesis 12 and this talk about salvation, we see the Bible is beginning by holding up this very flawed individual, somebody who messed up in a lot of ways, but who believed God's promises about the way God was going to reverse the curse through his seed and saying that that's what it looks like to be righteous or God counted it that to him as righteousness. And there's a sense in which the whole Bible is written to make that argument. In uh, 2 Timothy, Paul says that the sacred writings were, uh, are able to make you wise unto salvation. So they're sacred, the Old Testament scriptures, they're from God, and they have the ability to help you understand how salvation works. And uh, first of all, they do that by showing you who God is and what God deserves. And second of all, by showing us that we're unable to fulfill God's law and why. And then thirdly, they reveal that there's only one way man can be rescued, and that is by what God's going to do through the Messiah, and that our job is to believe it. In a sense, this is what our job is. What we do is know that we can't do it, and we go to God and believe that he can do it through the Messiah. And so many Old Testament stories and so much of the New Testament is written to say that. There is nothing more important for you than believing that God is as good as he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. There's nothing more important for you than believing God is as good as he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's why like a hopeless Christian or a hopeless church is really a sad thing. That's a tragedy. It's like a contradiction. Christians almost by definition are hope-filled people because we believe God is good and we believe that God is going to keep his promises. That's how we are, how we're saved. We're not just by, saved, I say it all the time, but we're not just saved by believing that God is going to send people to hell. We're saved. Saving faith is believing that God is going to show mercy to those who come in Christ, that we believe God wants to be generous and do good to those who come in Christ, that he is a God who is always faithful to his promises. But believing that is not easy. That's, we're faith people. That's, that's, that's what we're about. We know that. But believing in real life is often not easy, and we're seeing that it's not easy as we look at the life of Abram. And one of the things that makes it difficult is that it feels to us a lot of times like God takes a very long time to keep his promises, and he allows a lot of difficult things to happen in the meantime. And so uh, last time we were together, we were talking about Genesis, and we were talking about some of the challenges that Abram faced. And so we often think of his privileges, like God talked to him and things like that. But Abram had a lot of challenges. So we have it better than Abram, really, in so many ways. For one thing, he had a lot less of the word than we do. So who wrote Genesis? Moses. So did Abram come before Moses or after? He came before. So Abram didn't even have the book of Genesis. And we don't know for sure how many times God talked to Abram. But by the time we get to Genesis 16, it wasn't that, that many. Once in Genesis 12, another time in Genesis 13, and then again in Genesis 15. And uh, for those stories, we don't know exactly how he talked to him, except that in chapter 15, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, which seems big to us. But imagine, I was thinking this week, you find a really old phone, and it rings, and you hear someone speak over the phone, and he says he's from the past. 
He's from 1976. This is a K-drama. You can look it up. But he says he's from uh, 1976. And he has to tell you, he has to tell you something, and he, and he demonstrates that he's from the past. You believe him. But then you know it's like 10 years later, and that phone hasn't rung for 10 years. And I'm, guess, even if that, I'm guessing even if that experience was really strong, you're still going to be looking at that phone and asking, did I, uh, did I really hear that right? You're going to have some questions. And God's making, God has shown up and spoken to Abram, but he's making some really striking, shocking, impossible promises. Like, this whole country is going to belong to your descendants in the future. Like, take a walk. Imagine walking around California and, and God saying, okay, all of California is going to belong to your descendants. And even though you're super old and your wife is super old and you haven't had kids for 80 years, you're going to have a son and that son is going to be part of how I keep my promise to fix every problem in the world um, and really everything that's wrong with the universe. And so it wasn't easy for Abram to believe God's promises, especially the promise about the seed. That was the most challenging one. So if you think about Genesis 14, Abram goes to war because he believes God's able to take care of him. But chapter 15, God comes and says to Abram, don't be afraid because I'm going to give you a great reward. And Abram's like, well, what are you going to give me because I don't have any children? And God says, but you're going to. And the amazing thing is that at that point, Abram believed him. And God comes and makes a covenant with him and tells him how the future is going to go pretty specifically. But in spite of all those great promises, how does chapter 16 begin? Look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now Sarai's, uh, Abram's wife had borne him no children. And so Abram's continuing to wait, and his faith's going to be tested. But this time, uh, we're going to see, so is his wife Sarai's. Uh, God's come to Abram, made him a promise, made a great covenant. And the question as we look at this chapter is, will Sarai, Sarai trust that God is as good as he says he is? And it's not going to be easy. Verse 1 sets the setting. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar which is an interesting detail, right? Moses wants us to know that she's Egyptian. He could have just said she had a female servant. And, uh, and yet he adds this adjective, she's an Egyptian servant. And then in verse thir- 3, you can see that he just calls her Hagar the Egyptian. It's a noun at that point. So he wants you to know that Sarai has no children, and she has a servant, who's from Egypt, and he wants you to know that she's from Egypt because he wants you to think as we come into the story about how she came to have that servant, and how did she come to have this servant? It's from Abram's failure to trust God and his trip to Egypt, so the end of that chapter tells us that Pharaoh gave Abram a number of Egyptian male and female servants, and Hagar must have been one of them, and the consequence of that lack of faith is going to have even worse consequences here because Sarai looks at her situation in verse 2, and this is the way she sees it. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And what stands out to you about the way she says that? Maybe uh, contrast that with the way Abram spoke at the beginning of chapter 15. 15 verse 3, what did Abram say about his situation? Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Sarai says, um, 
the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. What's the difference? I think Abram's tone is maybe a little more positive. It might not be much different. But if I say to someone, you didn't give me something I needed, or I say to them, you actively stopped me from being able to do something, it seems a little different uh, to me. And so I don't want to make too much of it, but I've found that our struggles to trust God are usually infectious. And often the people in our family that we infect because we're not trusting God take it even further than we do. And so Sarai, uh, Abram says, God, you haven't given me any children. And Sarai is becoming bitter and saying, God, you are stopping me from having children. And even if that's not what's happening, you do have to wonder after what happened in the last chapter, why doesn't Abram rebuke her when she says this to him? Because he knows that God has promised them children. So he should at least say to her, wait, wait, it's, it's going to happen. But he doesn't. It just says at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened uh, to the voice of Sarai. And so she complains about God not preventing, uh, not giving her children, and Abram just listens. And uh, Sarah is not trusting God about what God has promised Abram, and so she comes up with her own plan. She has this female servant named Hagar, and she tells Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And it's like, welcome to the root of all of our problems. We get in trouble because we don't trust God, and we don't learn, and we keep on trusting that God is not as good as he says he is, and keep on trying to come up with our own solutions. And this is most definitely Sarah's attempt to come up with a solution. God made a promise, but she's thinking this is taking so too long, and so she thinks she has to be the one to get it done. Even though she has revelation from God, Abram's entered into a covenant with God, she has specific statements about how God's going to keep his promises, and she has clear examples of God delivering them, it's taking too long. And so she says, let's get this done on our own. And I think that's a big part of the issue for most of us in real life, how long God sometimes takes. Um, in real life, when God takes his time, we're usually tempted to, to question the goodness of God, no matter how many assurances that he's given us. I wonder if you've ever had that happen to you, where uh, God has been really good to you, but then... You, it just feels like he's not coming through as quickly as you would like him to, and your mind starts racing with all kinds of anxieties and worries, and you're very tempted to come up with your own solution. I, I think even of this Sunday sermon. I mean, we have so many promises in Scripture about God's ability to take care of us, and yet if you've ever been a, in a situation where you stepped out to obey God and he didn't provide what you needed right away, can be very tempted to th tempting to think, I guess he's not going to come through. Maybe you gave money, and you thought, I'm going to uh, sacrifice to give money, and then almost the next day you're like looking at your bank account, did somebody give me money, or did, you know, did somehow uh, an investment go up, and, I, and it doesn't happen, and you think, oh, is God not going to come through? Even though he's provided so many times in the past, if he's not working exactly at your pace, then it's so easy to start worrying and thinking that must mean he's not going to work. I remember when Marta and I uh, were uh, first married, we weren't 
we didn't think we were able to have children and it felt long to us, though it really wasn't long. We were just young. And um, so we had been praying and praying and finally uh, we found out that Marta was pregnant but I was still in school and so uh, literally the next day, uh, it felt like a miracle that night and we were like, oh my goodness. And then the next day I was thinking and worried, how are we gonna provide? I have just a couple more years of seminary left. How are we gonna provide? And here, it didn't even take me one day to start doubting that God was gonna be able to take care of us. And that is uh, what often happens to us, and it seems to be what happens to, to Sarai. She's thinking God is taking too long, and in her case, he is taking a while. It must have seemed like a while for her. If you look at verse three, how long has it been? It says it's been 10 years uh, since they got to Canaan. So um, maybe if you just take a moment and think about where were you 10 years ago? That's, I mean, even one year ago. Um, but 10 years is a long time ago. And since it's taking a long time trusting, instead of trusting God, Sarah, I think she needs to take action. She looks at the servant. She comes up with a plan. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her, and Abram listens to the voice of Sarai. And this is actually the first time we've heard Sarai talk, and it's not really a great place to start. Though this is a pretty common cultural practice, apparently. So what she was doing was normal. It's a little bit like a surrogate mother. But even if it seems normal culturally, they don't go to God, and later we're going to hear what God thinks of her plan, and it's, it's not good. And even the way Moses writes this is playing off what happened back in the Garden of Eden. So the woman said to Adam, Sarai said to Abram, you listen to your wife, Abram listened to Sarai. She took some fruit, Sarah took her servant, she gave some to her husband, she gave her servant to her husband, Abram. So Abram is following in Adam's footsteps. Can you think of anybody in Genesis that didn't listen to a woman? It's going to be the hero of Genesis, actually Joseph is the first one who doesn't uh, listen uh, there to a woman, and um, he gets thrown in prison for it, but God uses that. But God gives Abram a promise, and uh, his wife is coming up with this strategy that's going to cause him to veer from God's plan, and uh, like Adam, he listens, and there are terrible consequences. So he should have he stopped her at this point, which is why I think he's ultimately responsible. Um, Verse 3, he takes Hagar as a wife, and you know what happens? She conceives immediately. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived, which is often how it works with bad plans. So bad plans often are really effective in the short run. Um, and this is at least the second time a bad plan seemed to work. The first one was when Abram was in Egypt and he had Sarai get married to Pharaoh and Pharaoh gave him all that stuff. Imagine, um, there was one time I was in the airport and I uh, just was walking by one of those candy machines and I just like hit it with my hand and like something fell out and I was young and then I like hit it again and something fell out and then I felt like I hit that. <laughs> I mean, I was in high school. I felt like I hit the jackpot, but um, that's kind of what it felt like when uh, Abram had Sarai missed Mary Pharaoh, he, Pharaoh started giving him all this stuff. This time, even though Sarai has um, not been able to have children for all those years, Hagar almost immediately does. And it causes 
problems in the household as Hagar starts treating Sarai with contempt. It says, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And literally that is, she made light of her. Which you can understand if you were a slave in that situation, you're probably looking for all the value you can get. But acting like that was a big deal in that culture. And a big deal if you think back to Genesis 12:3, where God says, those who despise Abram will be cursed. And Sarai blames Abram for it. She says to, Sarai says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Which kind of shocks you about Sarai saying that, but that is, again, real life. <laughs> That's how, how it, it works so often. And Abram takes responsibility, sort of. Though he, does, he doesn't seem to like repent, but he, and he's pretty passive. But verse 6, Abram does say to Sarai, Behold, your servants in your power, do to her as you please. Or another translation is, do to her as is good in your eyes. So Abram says to her, you determine what's good, which doesn't sound like really great counsel um, from, from a husband. And it isn't, because what does Sarai do? End of verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, which is uh, actually the same word that he used in the previous chapter to describe what the Egyptians were going to do to the Israelites in the future. If you look back at chapter 15, verse 13, it says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God tells Abram, your descendants are going to be servants, and their masters are going to afflict them. And the very next chapter, um, what you find is an Egyptian servant being afflicted by an Israelite. So before the Egyptians ever afflicted the Israelites, immigrants, you have an Egyptian immigrant oppressed by an Israelite woman, and Hagar escapes. She fled from her. She's going back to Egypt, and what happens? Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her, and this is the first time in the Bible we have the appearance of the angel of the Lord, and it's kind of interesting if you look at it. Verse 7, it says the angel of the Lord. Verse 9, it calls him the angel of the Lord. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. And in verse 10, the angel says, um, I shall surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered in multitude. And so this angel of the Lord is interesting. There seems to be something going on like when we were talking about the word of the Lord coming. Now this angel of the Lord somehow seems distinct from Yahweh and yet he's called Yahweh. And so I think it's getting you ready for understanding, understanding Jesus. You have to understand, I mean, we are so privileged to live when we do with all this revelation. The way God does it is through the Bible, it's progressive, so he doesn't just dump all the data on us. He's like, uh, if you pull back a curtain, he's slowly but surely pulling back the curtain so you can see everything that's on the stage. And so here, already in Genesis 16, we're getting prepared to understand uh, Jesus by meeting this angel of the Lord who is distinct from Yahweh, but also called Yahweh. And the angel of the Lord finds her where? By a spring of water in the wilderness. And he knows her name, what she does, and asks her where she's coming from and where she's going, which is sort of reminiscent of how God pursued 
Adam and Eve after their fall, right? It, it's a similar question that he asks. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she explains, I'm running away. And the angel tells her to go back and submit to Sarah, but gives her a promise in doing that. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then he names the son Ishmael, which means God hears. And he makes an interesting statement about his future. He says, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction, which actually is also what happens to Israel uh, when they're in Egypt. God hears Here's their cry. And then it says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So he's going to be wild, and he's going to fight uh, everyone, <laughs> but he's going to have some power, which is very different than Hagar because she's experiencing conflict and she's the weak one, but God's going to perform some kind of reversal for her son Ishmael. And this is pretty amazing because God does two things at once. He doesn't honor um, Abram and Sarah's decision. He's not going to solve the problems of the world through uh, oppression and their rebellion. But he is going to produce good out of it for the one that they took advantage of. And this seems to have a huge impact on Hagar. If you look at verse 13, it says she calls on the name of the Lord. Now, where have you heard that? before in Genesis. That was all the way back with Seth's descendants. And so that was a way of identifying them as godly. And so this is identifying her. And she is the first person in Genesis to give a name to God. She calls God a God of seeing, which is beautiful because for the most part, other people have not been seeing her. She's just a tool that's used, but she says God sees her. And where does this take place? It takes place at a spring of water. Um, verse 14 a well, and so God meets a woman at a well, uh, a foreign woman, and he provides for her. Um, and this well is going to be important in the story because it's where Isaac settles. But, but now we've got a question because Sarai has taken matters into her own hands instead of trusting God, and things have gotten more complicated. And we might wonder now as we look at this seed and Hagar's being pregnant and how she meets with God and she comes back to Abram, and she has a son in verse 17 or verse 15. And um, we might wonder, is this the one? Is this the seed? Because while uh, there are parts of the story that seem um, sad, there are also parts that seem pretty positive. And we don't get the answer right away. There's a little bit of, of, of tension. Um, in fact, we turn to Genesis 17. And how old is Abram at the beginning of Genesis 17? 99. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And how many years later is this from Genesis 16? So verse chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so this is 13 years later. Just in that little white space there, we have um, we've advanced 13 years. And that's the other chapter. Remember, he had already been in Canaan for 10 years. So this is a long time um, from the beginning of chapter 16 to 17, and they still don't see the answer. I don't know how many of you have waited for an answer to prayer for 23 years. That's a pretty long time, and this is actually even longer than that. 
But God comes and he reaffirms the promise. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And that's a little strange because I don't know if this is a new covenant or it's just a way of reiterating the old covenant because he made a covenant with him in chapter 15. But either way, Abram falls on his face, it says. And God expands his promise to Abram. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And so we're getting a picture of how God works. God reveals himself. He makes promises. But there's a lot of time where Abram's not hearing from God, and all he's having to do is just trust And yet that doesn't mean God's not working. That doesn't mean God's forgotten his promise. He comes to Abram, and all the time in between doesn't worry God at all. The promise uh, instead is just getting bigger and bigger. And so if you look at it here, what's, what's different than what we've seen before? It talks about him being the father of nations, and he says that twice. It talks about actually three times. It talks about nations. And he adds something about kings. Kings shall come from you. And so each time we see an expansion that's important for us because it's explaining how salvation works. So what have we learned about what God's going to do through Abram? The fundamentals are he promised seed, land, blessing. And then he's shown that God's going to protect the seed even if Abram's foolish. And we've seen the specific land that God's going to give him. And we've seen that God's going to do it in such a way that makes it clear that he's the one who did it. And then we learn that there's going to be a son from Abram's body. And then we've seen God's commitment to this in the covenant he made with Abram. And now we learn about nations coming from Abram and kings and that God's going to keep this covenant with Abram's offspring in the future. He's not going to forget it. But since there are nations, we've got to wonder which nation is the seed because we're still looking for the one who's going to defeat the serpent. And this feels like it complicates it a bit. If Abram's going to have all these different nations, where's the seed going to come from? Which nation? How are we going to know? And so God gives Abram a responsibility to circumcise every male, which he says will be the sign of the covenant, and such an important sign that anyone who doesn't do that will be cut off. Um, Verse uh, 9 of 17, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through their their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male shall be circumcised. And we could talk about what that means, but basically now we can just appreciate that what's happening is God is marking off the seed through this ritual. He's identifying the group of people that he's going to use to bring blessing to the world. The men of that group are going to be those who are circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And since Ishmael is Abram's only son at this point, we might ask, is it going to be the descendants of Ishmael? And verse 15 is really clear. No. God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And so God's making it clear. It's not Ishmael. The seed's coming from Sarah. And now we're back to the issue that was making it difficult for Abram in the first place, just how impossible it was. And we see Abram's reaction, verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face. So he's already fought, he's, his nose is hurting at this point because he already fell on his face earlier in this chapter, but like in reverence. But now he's fallen on his face and laughing. 
And he says to God, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And uh, the first time he falls in his face was when God came and assured him that he's going to keep his promise. This time it's because God's plan seems so shocking. So he understands it's not hard for him to believe that God's going to do it for him. What's hard to understand and believe is how he's going to do it for him. How? Which is real life again. We can believe God is good, I think, generically. But sometimes it's hard for us to believe he can be quite as good as he says he's going to be. And uh, we struggle. We doubt. And so he even asked about Ishmael. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, it's going to be Isaac. I'm going to bless Ishmael, but I'm going to establish my covenant with Isaac. Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Laughter. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then it says, God went up from Abram, and Abram took Ishmael and his whole household, which is a lot of people. If you think about it earlier, there were like 381 men uh, who were born in Abram's household. And so I can't imagine being there that day when Abram called everyone together um, and said, you know what we're going to do uh, today? Uh, we're going to all get circumcised. And yet um, Abram is faithful to the responsibilities God's given him. And uh, what he's really doing is he's walking before God and he's being blameless which is what God had told him to do at the beginning of the chapter. He's doing exactly what God commanded him. But there's still no Isaac. There's just the promise. And it still seems impossible. And to emphasize how impossible, in chapter 18, we find God appearing to Abram again, and we see Sarah hearing the promise and responding the same way Abram did. This is probably the sixth time we've seen God appearing or God talking to someone. And each time it's a little different. So you have the word of the Lord appearing. You have the angel of the Lord This time, what do we read at the beginning of chapter 18? And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So what did Moses just do for you? This is good to learn even as you read narrative. What Moses just did for you was he told you it's Yahweh who appeared. So we know as we go into this chapter, Yahweh's appearing to Abram. But Abram sees these three men, and he runs to show them hospitality. So Moses is kind of giving you a behind-the-scenes look. This is Yahweh, but Abram sees three men, and he runs to them and shows them hospitality. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, what did he say? At beginning of verse 3. Oh, Lord. So he doesn't say, what, what's interesting that he, that he doesn't say? He doesn't say, oh, Lord. He says, oh, Lord. Um, he says, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour needed and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before him, them. 
and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Have you ever heard of us? Have you ever had somebody like prepare you a goat or something like that? We, when we were in uh, Monkey Bay, Malawi, we were staying in a little uh, hut, and uh, they killed a goat. And man, goats can really scare. They sound like almost sound like a human is dying. They really have a, a yell. Um, I don't know what calves sound like, but uh, goats, sure. Um, and f it was really dark because they put everything in there. So you're just like eating food. You're like, I don't know what this, because they don't have electricity. So and it takes so long to cook. Like, oh, M McKenna was with me, but she was just like 12, and so her little face was so cute trying to eat that food and listening to the goat <laughs> die out there. Um, but they took hospitality uh, seriously, like they did in Monkey Bay as well. And they ask about Sarah. They ask, um, uh, where is Sarah, your wife, verse 9. So this is going to be about her. That's who we're supposed to be looking at. Abram's showing them hospitality, but they're here for something related to Sarah. In verse 10, we're back to this ambiguity again, because we've been looking at these three men, but here we see it's not just three men in verse 10. It is the Lord. That's what it says. The Lord said. So is this two angels and Yahweh, um, or is Yahweh showing up somehow represented by three men? Uh, I don't know, uh, but... Yahweh's there, <laughs> and Moses tells us that Sarah's listening, and Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him, or at the tent door behind him, and verse 11, we're reminded of the issue again. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, and what does she do? Um, God says, I will return to you about this year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, or Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, and Sarah was listening at the tent door. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And how does God respond? God says, why are you laughing? And here's uh, the key, because he explains why she's laughing. In verse 14, he says, is anything too hard uh, for the Lord? Uh, she thinks it's too hard for the Lord. And a big part of what we're supposed to be learning through these stories about how God accomplishes salvation is that nothing is too hard uh, for the Lord. This kind of reminds me of Mary saying the opposite in Luke 1, nothing's impossible for God. Uh, we wait, and it's difficult, and we wait, but God is doing it, and he can do it, and nothing can stop God. Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. And this is, again, why anxiety is so anti-Christian, so anti-Christian. Anxiety is a respectable, terrible sin. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a big deal because anxiety is a theological statement. It's a theological statement. Worry, saying something about God and saying really that you think you're God because um, it is impossible for you. But if we take a minute and go back and run down the lessons from Abraham's story, we can think about, we've learned a lot of things about salvation, how salvation works. One, it's not man's plan. That was the Tower of Babel. Uh, salvation is God taking the initiative. God going to bless through Abram. God going to be faithful to his promises. Uh, he's going to uh, save through this seed. He's going to do it in a way that makes clear to the whole world that he's the one who does it. And what he wants from us, what he wants from you, what he wants from you is faith. He wants you to stop taking things into your own hands. Stop going through life thinking you have to be your own savior. 
and rely on his promises, rely on his promises. And in terms of how it's going to happen, it's going to be through Isaac, which seemed impossible, and that's part of the whole point. God is going to glorify himself by doing the impossible. And so when he makes a promise, you should be sure he's going to keep it no matter how long it takes and how impossible it seems because nothing is too difficult for God. So our job is really simple. Our job is really simple. The greatest priority for you each day when you wake up is to believe God's promises about the seed specifically, but his promises. Later uh, in John, people are going to ask, Jesus, what does God want from us? And you know what Jesus is going to say? The work of God is to believe the one he sent. <laughs> That's salvation, Old and New Testament. And the great temptation we all face, because God takes a long time fulfilling his promises, and they seem so impossible, is to try to take matters into our own hands, to not believe that God's as good as he says he is, and to use worldly strategies to try to accomplish God's will. And that's not just sin, that's dangerous, and it has terrible consequences. From the beginning of the Bible, when man doesn't trust God's generosity, tries to take matters into his own hands, he, 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 sometimes it seems like it works at first, but in the end, it just has long-lasting long consequences. And so let's pray that God helps us learn from these stories and trust him uh, no, matter, no matter what. And Jesus says one of the first places that you can learn to trust him is with your finances, if we think back to Luke chapter 12. But trust him when it comes to the future. So we, I think nowadays, especially tempted, especially tempted to believe that we can control our future or that we need to control our future. And we just like everything, we just like, we have this intense passion to, to just know everything about the future we you know and to be in control of it but we're not in control of it and when we take matters into our own hands and try to control it what we do is we shrink our life you know we shrink our life down and so you need to just step back and realize that there's only one person who can, can control the future and the it's good it, the future's all the future's good i i've seen the future and it's good you're gonna die that's going to be really hard. I've seen that. The process now is really hard. And then you're going to go into the ground, and then you're going to come back up. And you're going to live forever in a new heavens and a new earth, and there's not going to be any sin. There's not going to be any pain. And you're going to live with Jesus forever. That's, that's the gospel, really. You know, that's the good news. And so the gospel, as someone has said, makes you chill. That's Isaiah's quote. The gospel makes you chill, but it makes you chill in certain in regards to certain things, but that frees you up to be serious about the five seconds you have here on earth and use them to accomplish something much bigger than just uh, worrying about things that you don't need to worry about um, when God's going to take care of them. Um, sometimes it's good to look at your worries and think, what is the worst thing that could happen? And realize that the worst thing that can happen um, is not going to stop God from doing the best thing. <laughs> he's, he's, he, he's got no trouble using really, really hard things. So if I walk out from here today, I get hit by a car and die, my, God's going to use that in my family's life, and they're going to be closer to him as a result because he's the sovereign God who 
I don't want that to happen. But he's the sovereign God who, who's able to use hard and easy. He's, you throw anything at him, he's able to use it, and he's going to use it uh, for his good. And I know that because he promises he will. He says he's going to work all things together for good to those who love him. And God hasn't broken a promise um, once, even when it's a promise to like a 100-year-old man that he's going to be the father of nations. Even when right now we're seeing those promises that God, those very things God said back in Genesis, we're seeing them work out <laughs> like in Israel as Ishmael's descendants are wild donkey. There's something going on there. <laughs> there this, the fight is still going on. Um, and that's consequences of, uh, consequences of Abram's lack of trust in God. And, and um, let's not make the same mistake <laughs> uh, he does.